Should pugs be banned? Where does breed-specific legislation end? This week on The Veterinary Viewfinder. Welcome back to The Veterinary Viewfinder, the podcast that tackles the toughest topics in veterinary medicine. And one of the topics that keeps percolating from across the pond is banning breeds with serious health issues. I'm talking about brachycephalics, those pugs and Frenchies that we all love so much, should they exist. But before we get into that, as always, I am one of your hosts, Dr. Ernie Ward. I'm Dr. Cindy Courtney. And I'm registered veterinary technician, Becky Mosser. And this week marks a little bit of a, I don't know, what do we say? Uh, a going away, a transitioning away, uh, emerging into a new chapter for your life. We have Cindy Courtney today with us after a little bit of an absences, but she's in the final months of her second child pregnancy. But Cindy, you're unwinding from us. Yeah. And I know we, we've talked about that a little bit in the, preg- in the podcast before that um, because of increasing obligations, both with my family <laughs> and with some of the other work that I do, I'm going to need to be stepping back. So this will be the last official podcast, though you guys have been kind enough to to extend the offer for me to come back occasionally as a guest. You're always welcome because we need your voice and you've been here since the beginning. And and when you guys have recorded and you've been like, in the spirit of Dr. Courtney's devil's advocate, (laughs) that just warms my heart. So um, I I just want to give a shout out to any of our listeners out there who find themselves uh, stuck between amazing opportunities and forced to choose between opportunities that are all good and ones that they all love, but know that they can't give their heart to, to all of them at once. It's such, it, it feels like it tears you apart. So, so my heart goes well, out to all of you. And well, and your heart so needs to be to squarely separate. focused on your yeah. family. family. I mean, yeah, family you're first. doubling, doubling the number yes. of children. Oof. That's a big deal as a father of two daughters. I can tell you it's a lot of work. Yeah. Yeah. It well, does help that uh, this time for the the first time this week, our, our first little one said, I love you for the oh. first time. So. <laughs> yep. Those, oh, are, the, those are the things you will cherish. That's forever. the world giving you that payoff so you can keep on going. Well, we know we're going to yeah. miss you very much. Thank you for all the hard work and time yes. and dedication. And, you know, either way, we've got you for today for some more great conversation. Yes. <laughs> and since we're, we're talking about breeding, let's talk about <laughs> but I'm should ching. we be branding? <laughs> Banning the breeding of certain breeds. I mean, once again, we have seen the story emerge from the UK that veterinarians and pet advocates are saying, wait a second, should we actually have pugs and Frenchies and even the interminable British bulldog? I mean, that's really crazy. And and one of the things I want to kind of lead off our listeners, I think this has gotten ramped up over the past couple of years because of a very simple fact. In Great Britain, as they call it, the French Bulldog is now the number one most popular dog breed. It has replaced the Labrador Retriever. So suddenly now vets are being flooded with smushed face dogs that they just haven't seen in the past. So I want to just open it up to you guys. I mean, what do you think about these types of discussions? Well, I guess it depends if you're talking to Becky, the vet tech or the smush face lover, because <laughs> the idea of saying no more smush faces, um, 
it, it makes me really sad. But at the same time, I've seen a lot of smush faces that make me sad because we know anatomically they're they're stressed out because of how they're built. They're at risk because of how they're built. And, um, you know, it's it, it's disheartening. But at the same time, we know this isn't the only type of dog or type of build that has risks associated with it. Right. And I, so I think that's where we get into the conversation of where do these lines get drawn? Yeah. Cindy, what do you think if if the Brits had favored Dotsons? Like what if that was the oh number gosh. one breed? Do you think they would have said, hey, we've got to ban this dog that has all of these other osteo you know, arthritic problems, back problems, and so forth. You're hitting right at my heart because you know I'm a sucker for dogs <laughs> with short legs, right? Yeah. So Dachshunds, right. corgis. Although Perfect. I just learned that uh, corgis are the most searched for breed in the state of Kansas. So fun wow. fact. Um, okay. Yeah, but no, I, I agree. And I think I, personally in my clinical experience, there has rarely been an English bulldog that I've had the chance to examine that I feel has not had a major health issue. And so I do think that there are degrees here. I think there is a spectrum. And I think we're seeing something real when we see some of these brachycephalic breeds having significantly worse problems than others. And I think the other concern is if these dogs aren't able to reproduce on their own, if they do need veterinary assistance to even exist in the world, is, is that a line? But, but yeah, I do sometimes feel that pang of guilt when I, I hug my beloved dachshunds and I'm like, I know you're going to have terrible dental disease and I know you're going to be at increased risk for having intervertebral disc disease and potential paralysis or need right. major multiple thousand dollar surgery it does bring up those questions of, you know, is it worth it or is this a problem? And even for our other popular breeds like Labradors or Cavalier King Charles Spaniels, like we know that these animals are likely one case to get cancer and the other case to get significant heart disease. You know, at what point do we say, hey, this is worth it? And again, what is the right thing to do about it? Exactly. And, and so currently the, the two major solutions being proposed in the UK look like this. Number one, just a formal outright ban of the breed. And they say, you know, from this point forward, you cannot breed these, these dogs in our country. Um, I think that's ridiculous, preposterous. I don't think that would work at all. I think there's lots of ways to sneak a pug or a Frenchie in your pocket and cross uh, the border. The second thing is to try to improve the overall health. And so there's something called the Pug Breed Council in the UK. And they said, look, we've got this thing that they're calling the Pug Breed Health Scheme. And so basically they want to screen for dogs that would be used for breeding purposes and their offspring to sort of eliminate some of those obvious genetic or hereditary disorders. Again, that seems kind of, you know, a little big brothery, scary, you know, you don't get to live type of stuff. I mean, is it or is it exactly what we should be doing for all breeding to ensure yeah. that breeding is resulting in good bloodlines? Because if you think about the why, why are we breeding? I mean, I understand it often results in recreational ownership and, and, and that's fine, but we breed for breed specific traits. And so we know it is not for, you know, narrow, <laughs> you know, narrow breathing tubules that we want right. to be bre breeding. Right? That's not the, that's not the point. We want to be breeding for quality traits. And so do we help to take society and shift the mindset from just want a dog that looks really good to if you're looking for your, a purebred dog, it should be a purebred dog for a purpose and otherwise be driving people toward 
what's already available, such as such as rescues. Yep. And and I think a lot of this, Cindy, is is rooted in lack of education. I think a lot of pet owners get a Frenchie or a bulldog or a pug. It's so cute. It's just so darn cute. And they don't really understand the implications that that confirmation has further down the line. And then I think really, Cindy, what drives this conversation further is, holy smokes, it costs a lot of money. Yeah, absolutely. And I think too, you know, we fall in love with these breeds because we hear about other people who have dogs who love them, or we know other dogs that they're in love with. And, and we forget that in the past, there have been other very, very beloved breeds as well. Um, one of the things that drives me crazy is just some of the evolution of dog breeding and how I find the, that it deviates from other forms of animal breeding that you know, historically humans have used, like even in livestock breeding, there's some degree of outbreeding that's allowed even in something that's considered a purebred. So to some degree, you can still have, you know, like one thirty second of your breeding be some other breed and that you can still be considered a, a purebred Pure, animal. Right. And it's just seems crazy to me that we don't think about that or allow that in, in purebred dog breeding, since it seems like it would be healthy overall for the breed to make that possible. Um, so, so I also wonder again, if we go back to the drawing table and talk about, again, I don't know if a council or, you know, euthanizing or sterilizing animals that don't meet certain standards is, is the right approach, but just the, the overall confirmational goals of, of breeding and the way we approach breeding, whether or not those should be reevaluated, I, I think should be given serious consideration. Well, and, and for those of you that were at the VMX, you probably ran across the story that some of the pharmaceutical companies and other pet industry uh, corporations had said, we will no longer use these cute flat-faced dogs in our advertising anymore. You know, So there is this push to say, how can we make them, I guess, Cindy, is the word I'm looking for, less trendy or fashionable, perhaps? Is that what I'm looking for? So maybe if they stop promoting the breed and advertising, maybe that'll cure some of these ills. It may. Um, I, I actually, I think some of that pushback is not just coming from these companies, but that is actually coming from a client response. As someone who works for, you know, a, a veterinary journal, we were finding that these movements within the UK and Australia were actually, you know, initiating cyberbullying campaigns. So when uh, those kind of images were used outside of the context of you know, an article about brachycephalic syndrome, they were kind of coming out and saying, hey, please don't use these kinds of images, sometimes in a civil way, sometimes in a not so civil way. Right. So I, I think it's interesting to find that, you know, that that client pushback does influence how companies respond and, and how they end up marketing their products. Oh, well, well Becky, what about this? So uh, another solution that was uh, started in New Zealand, at least I know of in New Zealand last year, was many of the larger, I guess, pet shops and pet stores just said, we will no longer sell these breeds. What do you think about that solution? I mean, I think that pet stores shouldn't sell any breeds because we know, you know, the problem, the problems associated with that. But you know, it, it's going to take these types of changes for people to understand that there is problems. Um, you know, I guess the thing about it is you come back to it and you say to the pet stores, OK, why? What's the motivation? Why are you no longer selling them? And if it's because, 
you know, it is bringing a, attraction to a dog that has m- medical disorders that people don't know about and can't afford long term, then kudos to them because we really ultimately have to be looking out long term for the satisfaction, the health and the quality of the pet. Right. And we have a tendency to just really want to be fulfilling, you know, I, I want to say selfish in, in the nicest possible way what we want in a pet, but, but is what we're imposing on that pet is, is the best. But again, I guess my question is, is where do these lines start to be drawn and how far across them do we go? Right. And Cindy, this is what I'd like to turn the conversation to now. We've all on this podcast and writings and all of our lectures, we have railed against breed specific legislation when it comes to like banning certain breeds, like, you know, pit bulls in apartment complexes or in dog parks, right? So we, we've said, hey, that's clearly crossing the line. But now we're talking about legal, you know, legislation that would, in the UK at least, that would say you can't even own or breed this dog in the future. I mean, what's the difference? Yeah. And, you know, I think that's a really interesting question. And I think part of it comes down to is any specific legislation effective toward its intended goal? And I think one of the reasons, at least personally, I oppose breed-specific legislation is we know it's not effective. So we right. know that breed-specific legislation against pit bulls, for instance, is not going to be effective at helping prevent dog-related bites and aggression because we know that breeds are not the, the major contributing factor as to why dogs are aggressive. We know that that has a lot more to do with how those dogs are housed and trained and whether they're neutered or not and, and all those other things. Sure. So just as easily as you ban a specific breed, someone can just decide that a new breed is going to be fashionable uh, for folks in who might treat another breed of dog in the exact same ways. And then we get a new aggressive breed of dog, right? You know, my family parents had a Rottweiler while I was growing up. And, you know, that was the dog of the time before there were pit bulls that was considered the aggressive dog. So, so we know breed specific legislation when it comes to aggression is not effective. I think what remains to be seen here is would this kind of introduced legislation be effective? And I I think my concern and why I think it wouldn't be is because I think just as easily as we ban English bulldogs, I mean, can you create some other breed that is just going to have as many genetic problems? I think we need to address it closer to the root where we say, how are we addressing breeding and genetic issues and in breeds in general and helping make sure that we continue to produce healthy offspring and genetically uh, viable breeds in the long run. So I think, and and I guess that circles back to the point of, you know, does the legislation need to focus more specifically on genetic testing and ensuring something is genetically sound? But then I guess also the next question it brings up in my head is, should legislation be the one leading this initiative? Are we missing the boat on our, you know, creating within our own space what we will and won't allow in the ethical best practices for animals? Why is this coming down from legislation? Right. And I think this is where individual liberty and choice, it gets so confusing. And we really want to hear your thoughts on this because, I mean, we all confront this and probably all have slightly different opinions and how we think we could solve it. But the issue too, again, I think we started out saying, where are these lines? Like, do they exist just at confirmational defects? What about genetic or hereditary defects, right? I mean, should we be testing Labrador retrievers for food drive and impulse? Okay. I mean, where do these lines really lie? And I don't think we have a clear answer. The other thing is this once again reinforces the the need of organizations like the Kennel Club, the uh, AKC and others to maybe readjust their standards because they are really 
supporting these issues? I mean, what if we just su suddenly said, look, we really think that you should allow a, a pug that goes in a show to have an elongated snout or, or muzzle, right? I mean, wh why aren't we even willing to give a little bit in the name of better health? Yeah. The other thing that comes to mind for me is I think as a profession, especially as the trend has started to build over the past, uh, you know, past decade or so, we've been kind of mocking of some of these designer mutts. Sure. Um, yeah. I, the one I just most recently heard of was a jug. I just heard about it yesterday. Jug. Anybody want to guess what a jug is? A uh, Japanese pug. It's actually a Jack Russell pug. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, Even but, better. But, Right, we've made fun a jug of that. Has a longer snout. Right. So, so, yeah. I, and at the same time that we say, and we kind of joke that you're paying a lot of money for a, a designer mutt. mutt. Right. Maybe that's exactly the way to get yeah. some of these breeds to be adding more diversity to their lines or to, to kind of influence these breeds and to say, hey, it's not just the appearance of that breed that is popular or appealing and that in fact having some other traits playing a part in this breed could in fact be be uh financially viable if you're a breeder again we know that's that's a dubious proposition but but could be beneficial to the breed in the long run i guess for me i just struggle so much with the idea of is supporting breeding in in kind of any fashion and, and the idea like it worries me that if if we are in support of creating these quote unquote additional designer breeds as newly acceptable and newly encouraged um are we doing the right thing by just moving away from breeding in general for for reasons outside of the work and the job that these animals do when they need to do it and m more toward responsible pet ownership? And, and like we are a long way from solving that problem uh, and there being homes for all the dogs that there are than like encouraging and more designer breeds to be out there. Um, I, I guess I just struggle with that ethically. Yeah. And, and I think that our, our profession is struggling with this as well, because we don't know where to lie. Adopt, don't shop. Or do you support getting a Labrador for your, your family? Uh, I mean, those are real salient questions that have you know economic impact as well as how we practice uh, our, our medicine and surgery. But I, I kind of want to revisit that for just a second, because when we look at the move away from pure breeds, we also, I think, risk damaging this this tribalism and unique bond that we have with certain dogs. The other thing, you know, as someone who has worked in shelters, worked with the HSUS, and just like you, Becky, with ASPCA, we also know that one of the biggest barriers to adopting from a shelter is we don't know what size it's going to be. So pure breeds offer some sort of, you know, assurance that, well, this is going to be a 20-pound dog or whatever. So it's a complicated issue. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's sort of where I think genetic testing is interesting. I know... Um, a lot of you listeners out there are probably like me and tuned into the Puppy Bowl first and foremost for Super Bowl <laughs> weekend. And there was a really cool thing. And, and, and I understand the science isn't exactly where it needs to be yet. But there was a really cool thing where they had pulled the genetics from the dogs participating in the pup, Puppy Bowl. And I thought, what a cool thing to be able to do within shelters to allow for some of that information. So if you are looking for, say, you grew up with a 
golden retriever and you really, really love them, when you go to the shelter and you see four or five dogs that contain golden retriever, but but maybe some other breeds are more open to adopting them than going and finding that specific. So I think there are ways around that. Again, it's complicated. There's nothing easy about it. But I, I think we have science to help us encourage what is present in these dogs already and just getting on top of that. And I, I get it. I'm a broken record, but it will be hard for me to 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 point myself more toward breeding and and breeding for great qualities on a higher level other than for jobs. Right. And, and it's hard not to when shelters are full yeah. of dogs. I know. And, and I guess I have a maybe broader approach, which is that absolutely, I think we still have a big job to do when it comes to educating potential pet owners and existing pet owners about the suitability of dogs who are already available in rescues and shelters to be their household pet. Um, and, and even just educating people about if they do feel really drawn to a potentially purebred animal or an animal that at least has part of a specific breed, you know, just how available those animals are. So I, I think we still do have a lot of work to do there, but I guess I'm more open to any particular strategies that make it less likely that animals will end up in shelters or will end up euthanized. And that includes making sure that the breeders that we do have are well socializing their puppies after they do breed them so that those animals are less likely to have behavior problems, making sure that we don't have as many puppy mills, making sure that, you know, those animals that we do breed are going to be sound, healthy animals. So people are less likely to be giving up those pets to shelters because they can't afford to take care of them. So, so I guess perhaps my view is that we can take a multifaceted approach, but definitely I think I agree that our focus should be primarily on making sure folks can um, see those animals who are already available and rescues and shelters as their first option. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, I think you make a great point as far as, you know, I think that we could do a whole nother show on how are we assisting and helping our practices or our clients with the pre-purchase part, because a lot of times we aren't a part of it. We don't have accessibility to them because maybe if they don't have another dog at home, they haven't come in. But, you know, it makes me think back to the Dalmatians, right? What did we right. do so right with Dalmatians when they were getting super overbred that they were becoming aggressive and deaf and blind and having all of these genetic disorders? It was like word of mouth, right? It was before the internet. It was before we had all of this accessibility. And yet we were able to really put the hammer down on that. Well, I think that's where what I was getting at with the trendy and fashion come into play because that's, you know, what, what's really happening in the UK, this popularity of, of the brachycephalics has been fueled primarily by celebrities. I mean, there's lots and lots of high profile celebrities that have, you know, these dogs. I mean, I think that, you know, Hugh Jackman definitely has been parading around with one. I know that Lady Gaga had like a Frenchie recently, um, you know, uh, the Beckhams, you know, the family, the, the spice girl and the soccer guy, <laughs> they, they had a Frenchie, I believe too. So my point is that oh my fashion goodness. and trendy is something and I think that's what Dalmatians, they kind of, we saw that wave of Dalmatians. Good Lord. It was yeah. all around the, you know, cartoon character. Yeah. And then suddenly I think it just fell out of vogue and, and we can all relate to the little, you know, purse pets that were in vogue when Paris Hilton first hit the scene. And we all were like, oh gosh, make it go away. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> yeah. Why, why don't we have breed specific legislation where we all wish it was directed? You know, I get it though. You know, in, 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 in I think there's no simple answer. We've certainly said that. And, and again, I, I'm more interested in one who should be driving this argument. Should this be coming down from government or should we be heading this up on our own? I know over in the UK, 
you mentioned they have a council. They're getting in front of it. Yeah. I know that there are, you know, there's legislation going on in Canada right now that the veterinarians are getting in front of. And just feel like a lot of times when it comes to the United States, the government is getting in front of it before we are. And, you know, I think we are from a a group of people who just uh, as a profession don't want to tick off our clients, don't love to make a a fuss. And I think we've got to change that. I, I really wish that these initiatives were coming more from us than from above of us or from government. Yeah. And so I'm going to give a caveat first that I totally agree with you, but being a devil's advocate, because that's that's <laughs> one of the roles I take here and taking a point of view that actually is not my own. I, I There's this guy who always comes to our local VMA meetings and he's the local guy who still does all the ear crops and the tail docks. And it only takes one of them. And there's, you know, anyone who needs or wants to have that done manages to find their way to him. And there's a part of me that wonders if even as a vet community, if we all come together and we oppose it, is there a kind of reverse psychology where then pet owners are like, how dare you as veterinarians tell us what we should and shouldn't want for our pets and judge us for wanting these things for our animals versus if we do wait for the clients to drive that tide and then we follow along behind them, we look like the good guys. I, 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 I wonder about that because I yep. yeah, yeah, and I know that it's not a view that you see, but I guess I have no question in my mind taking the point of ethics and what is okay and isn't okay for animals. And and if we know that we're breeding or doing something that ultimately causes harm for pets, we should be in front of that initiative, whether it pisses our clients off or not. Yeah, right. I mean, that's the essence of the argument right there. Are we breeding pets destined to suffer? And and I think that yeah, if we, we knowingly support and contribute, then yeah, we're part of the problem. For me, you know, I think that it's a mixture of all of these solutions. I don't think the banning it's going to work. I think I've made that abundantly clear, but I do think that we should adjust the breed standards. I, Becky, I don't ever see a time, at least in my lifetime or my children's lifetime, or perhaps even their lifetime where we don't have purebred dogs. I think there's a lot of, a lot of good reasons for it. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to get into that uh, argument right now, but my point being that we need to be looser and make these standards based on actually what's best for the pet moving forward. So if that means the jug, (laughs) Jack Russell and the pug approach, I'm good with it. And, and, you know, Cindy, you've brought up a a really an old argument against some of the AKC principles. And that is why don't they allow for some genetic drift? Because that's much healthier. And, you know, it's the only breeding principle that actually says, nope, it's got to be straight down the line. No, no, you know, additional uh, uh, genetic uh, information uh, inserted. And that's a real problem. And I think that's where we are today. I don't think we can solve this one. It's a heck of a, a good conversation. It's something that I love bringing to our profession. And, and Cindy, that's why I've just enjoyed working with you the past two and a half years. I'm going to miss you uh, terribly, not only your devil's advocate and taking opposing uh, opinions, but just your, your, your really informed insight. And I think your voice is, is definitely an important one. And so again, thanks for, for coming along for the ride. Well, and I'm so glad to have been a part of this journey. And again, you guys bring so much insight to our profession and tackling the tough, tough topics. And, and again, especially I think Becky, your contributions on the veterinary technician side and making sure that our other team members have an opportunity to have their voices heard is so essential. So I'm I've just been honored to be a part of it. I'm going to miss you guys. Yeah, well, you've got a bigger journey ahead of you. Uh, Again, Cindy, I you know, you've heard this from everybody, but 
it doesn't just double in responsibility. It's exponential. Like, you know, the first kid is like, yeah, okay, we got this. Second kid, we've been there. And then it's like, uh-oh, no, they're different. They have all mm-hmm. the different challenges, personality. Oh, yeah. You but anyway, this. good luck. You got Thanks. this. You Emergent got properties, right? <laughs> oh, wow. It's it's fun. But again, I'm at the other end of that arc. And you know, my children are leaving home uh, next year. And uh, both of them, so we'll be empty nesters uh, for the first time in our lives in a long time. Uh, so, you know, the reality is we've seen the journey and I'll tell you, just treasure it because those moments, those are the ones that I tri- just cherish. And, you know, I, I, I will tell you, Cindy, I don't think a day goes by that I don't tell my wife, Laura, I miss my babies. <laughs> I miss my babies. So, so enjoy them while you got them. Will do. Will do. I was thinking that maybe they, they can even tell you the name of Spice Girl and Soccer Guy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, I know. Well, you've heard what we have to say about banning these breeds. Now we want to hear from you. Let us know if you think you can imagine a world without pugs and Frenchies and bulldogs or not. We want to hear from you. What what animals would make your band list or not and why? Or if you did have to draw a line and say, here are the health issues that would, would make me say, nope, this is a no-go breed for me. Let us know what your thoughts are. And um, so you can find us on Facebook and on Instagram, since those are linked at Veterinary Viewfinder. And you can find us on Twitter, the username's a little different, at Vet Viewfinder. And of course, as always, we would love to hear what you thought of the podcast. Or if you want to say a quick goodbye to me, you leave a review um, at iTunes is the, the best place for you to leave that for us. And while you're there, don't forget to click to subscribe so you don't miss one great episode of the Veterinary Viewfinder. Until next time. Bye. Bye. I love love that jug. Jug. That is awesome. (laughs) Now I'm going to have to go Googling that. (laughs) I think my border terriers would be terribly offended to know they could be mixed with a pug. My two they're okay with it. They're okay. Oh, my, wow. my husband actually regularly asks me because we have a Pomeranian. He's like, could you mix this breed with a Pomeranian? Could you mix this breed with a Pomeranian? Especially because now they have the like Pomeranian Huskies, I guess. What oh, are they wow. called again? Pomskies? Yeah, so I was like, just because you can, honey, doesn't mean you should. <laughs> Those are words for life right there. That's yeah. words for life.